So this morning we are we are gonna we're gonna look at the text. We are in the book of Acts. So let's open our Bibles and say word. We are going to meet a person who is filled with fire. And we have a tendency in the church and in the culture, we like to elevate certain individuals, and we like to say, well, because of that person, this success has happened. Like, for example, the Cavs and Golden State are playing right now. And when people talk about the Cavs, who do they typically reference? LeBron James. And then for Golden State, they typically reference Kevin Durant. Okay, and, and so we, like, elevate these people. And, and rightfully so on behalf of Golden State because they really took it to the Cavs the other night. Anyway, um, how about Microsoft, Bill Gates, uh, Apple? So we, we elevate these particular people. But we forget all of the folks that make that possible. You put Kevin Durant, you put LeBron James on a court, and you put them up against five people, they're going to lose every time. Debatable. And we do this in the church. We elevate certain people. Uh, Billy Graham, for example. Uh, or locally, Tony Evans or Chuck Swindoll or, or uh, uh, Matt Chandler. And we elevate these particular people. And God does. He uses people powerfully. But the text of Scripture always is reminding us that God is using normal, average people. Imperfect people to bring about his perfect will. And through the narrative, we have heavily focused on the ministry of the Apostle Peter and the Apostle Paul, and rightfully so. Very significant use. God used them dramatic, great ways. But this morning, the text is going to pull us back, and it, it, this, this particular person is going to rise, and we are going to be grateful for meeting him. And we're going to be reminded that God does powerful things in and through people who are fully devoted to him, who are filled with a fire, who are teachable, and who are obedient. And so with that in mind, we are turning our attention to Acts chapter 18. We're going to be specifically starting in verse 24, but just for a little bit of context, last week we saw Paul travel from Athens to the city of Corinth, and it was a very important strategic city. In fact, I have a map here, map, 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 everybody's excited. Okay, so here's my favorite part of the morning, we get to look at a map, and so Paul traveled from Athens over to Corinth, and that particular city sits really strategically between the Aegean and the Adriatic, and it was this great port city. It was also the great city of, it sounds like sin but it ends with X, so full of sex. Okay, it was the city of sex. Some of you are like, last week that was the discussion? Dang it, I should have been here. You should have. It was really good. Okay, so they had in the middle of that city the largest temple of Epaphrodite. It was the temple of the goddess of love, and she boasted her thousand prostitutes. Okay, the city was licentious. And Paul entered into the city by himself. He didn't know anybody. In fact, he sought out, he looked for like-minded individuals, and he found that in the likes of Priscilla and Aquila. They were fellow believers, they were Jews, they were tent makers, and Paul, being a tent maker by trade, immediately found his tribe. And he began preaching in the synagogue every single Saturday, proclaiming and declaring and showing that Jesus is the Messiah. Over the course of a year and a half, many came to faith. In fact, there was a great harvest in the city of Corinth, as you all remember, Crispy Cereal, Crispus, the head of the, the synagogue in Corinth, came to faith, as did many Corinthians. There was a great opposition inside of the synagogue, and so Paul moved right next door and planted a church at Justice's house, 
And over the course of that year and a half, there was a trial. They were presented before Gallio. Gallio ended up saying, I'm not going to rule on this matter. Then Sosthenes got beat up. You all get the point. It was an awesome, awesome message. So Paul leaves Corinth, and he goes to Centrea, and he gets a haircut there. We have no idea why the scripture tells us that, but he gets a haircut. Supercut Centrea. Stops off there. They sail across. I'm pointing. I'm going to use my laser pointer. They sail across from Centrea all the way over to Ephesus, and this is where Paul leaves Priscilla and Aquila. They're now a part of the mission. I find that significant. Because Priscilla and Aquila, they were kicked out of Italy. They made their way to Corinth. They set up a tent-making shop. Then they're discipled by Paul, and now they're missionaries, which I just think is so incredibly cool. And they're going to be used powerfully this morning in the text. Paul the Apostle finishes his missionary journey. He travels back to Antioch, and then he begins his third missionary journey, and that is where we are. Acts 18, verse 20. Let's start in 18. 1818. That was a great year, wasn't it? 1818. Some of us are like, I remember that. After this... Paul stayed many days longer than took leave of the brothers set sail for Syria. So he's leaving Corinth, and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Centrea, he had his hair cut. I have no idea. He had a vow, so he got a haircut. I guess that was important. They came to Ephesus, and he left them there. Who's them? Priscilla and Aquila. Good job. Okay, so he left them there, but he himself went to the synagogue. He reasoned with the Jews when they asked him to stay for a longer period of time. He declined, but taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. God does will, and Paul will return back to the city of Ephesus. But he sails for Caesarea. He goes and greets the church at Jerusalem. Then he goes up to Antioch. It says down, but anyway, we can get into that later. And he spent some time there, and then he departed on his third missionary journey. So we follow Paul all the way over to Antioch of Syria, and then the narrative goes, and we go right back to the city of Ephesus. So look at verse 24. We're going to meet a guy who, interestingly enough, all of the commentators that I read, like, skip over. I mean, they mention him briefly, and then they're like, back to Paul. And I'm like, whoa, 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 slow down. I think we're going to be very encouraged and edified for meeting this guy. Verse 24, it says... It says in the text. Now, a Jew named, what is his name? Apollo Creed. You'll never forget it. Except he doesn't follow the rocky at the end. Anyway, now a Jew named Apollos, a native of what city? Alexandria. Can we bring up the map one more time? You know I just, I love my map. Thank you, Treva. Okay, Alexandria is down here. Very, very important city in the Roman Empire. In fact, it was the second largest, greatest city. At Alexandria was the city of the great rhetoricians. The great arguers, the great philosophers. It boasted the greatest library of antiquity, the city of Alexandria. It also boasted a very large Jewish population. In fact, it was the home of the great Jewish philosopher Philo. And so this guy, Apollos, is discipled in the city of Alexandria. And the text is going to tell us in verse 24, it says, A Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a what man? Eloquent. This is interesting. If you have a Bible, actually underline that. That is the only time in the New Testament that that word is used. It is used one time, and it is used to refer to this guy who is going to be so brief in the text. But it's a way of the, the author like cluing us in, hey, this guy's pretty significant. He is an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. In fact, that word, eloquent, it means that he was learned, cultured, he was polished. You might call him silver-tongued. He's very eloquent in speech. But he was also very competent in the scriptures. Those two things combined really made him a very valuable tool for God. 
When it says that he was competent in the scriptures, can somebody tell me what that was referring to? What are the scriptures? What's interesting, the Old Testament. In fact, throughout the New Testament, any time, barring one example out of Peter, every time the word scriptures is used, it's always referring to the Old Testament. Always. And what I find fascinating is I listen to Christians today and they're like, oh, I don't study the Old Testament because it's old. I study the New Testament because it's new. And I'm like, I don't think you know what you're talking about. But I can show you. Family, we do not need to breeze over the Old Testament. The Old Testament is the content and the substance of the fulfillment of all that we read in the New Testament. And what I find fascinating is is this guy, uh, Apollos, could reason from the Old Testament that Jesus is the Messiah. How many of us as New Testament believers can reason from the Old Testament that Jesus is the Messiah? I'll let you chew on that for a minute. Verse 25, it said that he had been instructed. Okay, another fascinating word. What does it mean that he had been instructed? There was an instructor. I know you guys are just so overwhelmed today by my, my intellectual prowess. But think about that. We often look at folks and we forget. We think, wow, they're, so, they're being used by God. And I'm like, who trained them? There are no self-made men and women in the church. We are all disciples. We are taught. We are instructed. We are given tools. We are trained. And so he is instructed in the way of the Lord. That is the way that we discover the way of the Lord. We are instructed. And he was fervent in spirit. Another very rare word. I, I'm reading this literally in the Greek, and I'm like, who is this guy? He is described as fervent in spirit. He spoke and taught accurately concerning the things of Jesus, but he only knew part of the story, as we're going to see here in just a moment. I love how they describe how the text describes him as being fervent of spirit. That word is only used twice in the New Testament, once to refer to Apollos, and then the second time is used to refer to all believers. We're all supposed to be fervent in spirit. In fact, just write this in your notes. Romans chapter 12, verse 11. <laughs> I love this. I love sloths. I don't know what it is about them. Maybe it's just like I deeply desire to just be that lazy. <laughs> but I, could you imagine having a sloth trying to get something done for you? So Paul says, don't be slothful in zeal. And I'm just imagining... But be fervent. That word, it literally means to boil, be on fire. Remember I said fire? Fill us with fire at the beginning. Paulus was filled with fire. We are to be filled with fire, fervency. Serve the Lord. Like serve him in passion and energy. Like your spiritual, your physical vitality. And so as I was thinking about sloths, they are cute but frustratingly slow as depicted in one of my favorite movies. Please roll clip. Actually, I just remembered I have a pal at the DMV. Flash is the fastest guy in there. You need something done, he's on it. I hope so. We are really fighting the clock, and every minute counts. Wait. They're all slots? This isn't like the church at all, right?
quick. What are you saying? Uh, flash, flash, the 100-yard dash. You know, that is such a great picture, isn't it? Because we can laugh at it, and we're like, oh, it's funny, those are sloths. But that's what Paul is referencing in Romans 12, 11. That's what Apollos wasn't. We're not called to be slothful in zeal, but we're, we're called to be fervent, on fire. You ever heard of somebody like, that person's on fire for the Lord. And then we have like that spiritual gift of like pouring water on them. We're like, oh, that'll pass. I used to be on fire too. But you know what's incredible? When you get hot enough, you can turn water into fuel. God, turn us up. Heat us up. That is Apollos. He's fervent even though he only knew part of the message. Look at the end of verse 25 of Acts 18. It says in the text that he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he only knew the baptism of John. That's all he had. That's all he was working with. He had the Old Testament, and he had the teaching and the baptism of John. Warren Wiersbe surfaces, fleshes this out a little bit more. He says his message got as far as John the Baptist and then stopped. He didn't know about Calvary. He didn't know about Calvary, the death, the burial, the resurrection. He didn't know about the arrival of the Holy Spirit. In fact, he had zeal, but he lacked spiritual knowledge. And I want to stress today, there are a lot of zealous, and there's a, a lot of fiery preachers out there, but let me, let me just lay, I'm going to lay a truth on you, reality on you. Zeal without knowledge is dangerous and even destructive. I'm going to say that again. Zeal without knowledge is dangerous, if not destructive. And, and well, I can also say that knowledge without zeal is lifeless. You have you all met somebody that's got a lot of knowledge but no zeal? Yeah, it's really hard. That's a tough one. And so we're supposed to combine both of those. Zeal and knowledge. In fact, Romans chapter 10, verses 1 through 2, I'm not going to read it, but Paul fleshes out the dangers of having zeal but no knowledge. It broke Paul's heart because he watched his people trying to earn their righteousness through the law. They were very zealous for the law, but it wasn't leading them to righteousness. Zeal without knowledge is destructive. It's even deadly spiritually. Apollos' message was not inaccurate or insincere, writes Warren Wiersbe. It was just incomplete. And so he shows up in Ephesus and he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. But when, who, is, who are the people? Priscilla and Aquila. Interesting that she is mentioned first. There's only one other place where she is referenced second. From here on out, she's always referenced first. I think she was probably the more used of the two, probably more known in the church. Some would even have called her a preacher. I'm not going not gonna to step on any toes if I declare that, do I? Some of you all ladies have spiritual gifts, and they need to be used. Someone amen that. Okay. They took him. They took him. They didn't publicly shame him. They didn't go, oh, oh Paulus, you're so wrong. No, they took him quietly. They probably invited him over to a Sabbath dinner. And it says in the text that they explained to him the way of God more accurately. I see a couple of things. I see the humility of Priscilla and Aquila to take him privately. They don't like chastise him publicly, and they probably didn't even chastise him privately. They explained to him more fully and more accurately the way of God. I see a very teachable heart in Apollos 
Sometimes when people are really, really gifted and they're really eloquent and they have a, they have a, a real gift, they're really hard to teach. I've met people that are so gifted, they got their fingers in their ears, and they're like, I'm so gifted, look at all I've done, I've got all these degrees, and I'm like, take your fingers out of your ears. If you can't follow, you can't lead. If you can't be taught, you can't instruct. And so Apollos is teachable. That impresses me about this guy. And it says in verse 27, it not only impressed, uh, it not only impresses me, but it impressed the church. The church at Ephesus in fact, verse 27, it says, when he wished to cross to Achaia, that is present-day Greece, in fact, he wanted to pass over to Corinth, the brothers did what? They encouraged him. Isn't that wonderful? I love to see God raise up laborers for the harvest. And it's not just for the labor here at Firewall. We love to see laborers raised up and then sent out into ministry. So they encouraged him, and then they not only encouraged him, but the text says that they wrote to the disciples to welcome him. There were a lot of false teachers at the time. And so the church at Ephesus wrote a letter of recommendation to the church at Corinth, and so he leaves encouraged, and he leaves with this letter of recommendation, and then he goes to Corinth, and the text tells us in verse 27, verse B, he arrives there, and he greatly what? Hindered. No, he greatly helped. Those who, through the grace of God, believed. How did, they, how did they come to hear about Jesus, those who believed in the city of Corinth? Paul had preached. In fact, we are told that Apollos had a specific calling in ministry. Paul planted and Apollos watered. Please start to see that the ministry is carried out by a plurality of servants. It's not carried out by one individual. It can't be. And yes, LeBron James would lose a five-on-one. Whoever said that, he wouldn't. Was it you, Daniel? He gets there. He not only defends, or not, he not only encourages the saved, but he defends. In fact, he provides a very adequate defense. So much so, in verse 28, it says, he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. That word refuted, it means to argue. In fact, it's very, very close to a Greek word called, uh, Greek word apologia. In fact, I would argue that Apollos was the finest example of a first century apologist. Everybody say apologist. Did not mean he walked around and apologized to everybody. But he was a great defender of the faith. And just like he was zealous, and we're called to be zealous and full of fire, he was a defender of the faith, and we ourselves are called to be defenders of the faith. In fact, I want you to write this reference down. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, the text of Scripture says, In your heart, honor Christ as holy. Set him apart in your heart. Always being what? Prepared. That is the Greek word apologia is where we get the word apologist. Be prepared, be trained to make a defense to anyone who asks you, to anyone who asks you, to anyone who asks you for the reason, the hope that is in you, but do it with gentleness and respect. And there are going to be times when people will be curious, interested of the Jesus in you, and they're going to want to know, why do you hope in Christ? And the scripture tells us to be prepared 
to provide a defense, some people will do it out of curiosity. Some people will do it out of antagonism. You know, they'll be like, oh, why do you believe? And you, you'll be like, well, okay, let me show you. But be prepared. And I've heard people tell me, Chris, you know what? I try not to engage in spiritual discussions. Well, for a couple of reasons. One, they might ask a question I might not know the answer to. And two, I don't want to give them, I don't want to mislead them. I don't want to tell them something that's not true. And I'm like, okay, that makes sense. But how long are you going to use that excuse? Because that, all that sounds like to me is an opportunity to get prepared. Like if you're aware of that, like if you're looking at your spiritual life and you're like, I don't think I could give an adequate defense so I'm going to be quiet. I'm like, okay, while you're quiet, get trained, get prepared, get sharpened. So that when that person does ask that question, then you do have a defense. You do have a reason for the hope that you have. Right? Y'all see that? And so Apollos is trained. In verse 28, again, it says he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures. When that, when that says scriptures, what is that referring to? He could take the Old Testament and clearly demonstrate that Jesus is the Messiah. How many of us as New Testament believers could do that right now? Like if I handed you a Bible, and I said, go ahead, provide a defense that Jesus is the Messiah from the Old Testament. And some of us right now are like, please don't hand the Bible to me. I'm not going to make eye contact. Think lubies, 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 lubies. This is not criticizing you. This is a challenge. Family, as Christians, we need to be able to give an adequate defense of the faith that we have. We say that we are believers and followers of Christ, and rightfully so. I believe the majority of us are. Some of us are confused about what that even means, and that's okay. We'll teach you. We'll show you the way of the Lord. But for some of us, we have been in these seats for so long and we provide that circular argument. Well, I'm not, I don't really know, so I don't share. I don't share because I don't really know. I don't <laughs> Quit making circles. It's time to start walking this thing out. And so I want to encourage you, challenge you to get into the text and to be discipled, to be trained, to be teachable. And I, I love this because Apollos is powerfully used. I think he's just a person just like us. Some of us are like, oh, I'm not eloquent. Okay. You still can be used. And then just as quick as he launches up and out of the scriptures, out of the narrative, he like disappears again. And we don't see him again through the book of Acts. Look at 19 verse 1. It said, and it happened while Apollos was at Corinth. So it's crazy. So we left Corinth. We went to Ephesus. Paul left. Then Apollos came to Ephesus. Then he goes to Corinth. Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. And there he found some disciples. <laughs> Where did those disciples come from? Apollos. Do you all see how this works? You go, you share the message, you make disciples. God sometimes calls you on. God's always bringing somebody. The message is spreading, and it's popping up all over the world. Beautiful, beautiful stuff out of Acts chapter 18 and starting verse 19. Well, let's get to some applications because next time we'll be together. Not next week. Next week is Youth-Led Sunday. It's Graduation Sunday. Some of you are graduating or have graduated. Any graduates in here? Somebody get a certificate of graduation? An award for participation? 
Yeah, there we go. Everyone's a winner. All right, so applications. Uh, first, the ministry is a team sport. Everybody say team sport. Okay, ministry was never intended to be carried out by one people or a small group of people. It was always designed to be a team sport. In fact, we could call it a team or we could call it a family or we could call it more accurately to the scripture, the body of Christ. The church does not rise or fall on any particular person. Oh, of course, Christ. It, we get that. It's Jesus' heir, but you get what I'm saying. It's not based on a single person. And we have a, te- a tendency of like elevating people. We've got to be reminded the ministry is carried out by us. We are the body. You have gifts, a God-given purpose, a calling on your life, and it is our privilege to help you walk that out and discover what those gifts are and so that you can, too, be used by God. There is no greater blessing, uh, privilege than to be used by God in, in any tiny way, to be a part of his story. I can't think of any greater honor. Uh, when I was going through seminary, um, it's not the seminary's fault. I, and this is going to sound derogatory. It's not. I love the seminary, and I love my time there. But often the people that were brought in were the heavy hitters. You know what I'm talking about, heavy hitters? Writing the books, the podcasts, you know, the well-known folks. I found it interesting that they never brought small-town preachers in who'd, like, faithfully labored for, like, 30 years. And so my perception got skewed, and I started to think, well, if I'm going to do something great for God, it's got to be great, monumental. (laughs) I was so deceived. There is nothing greater than just being used by God. I remember one day I was, I was stretching over here at the local rec center, and I saw the water tower. You all know the Rowlett water tower? Hey, a city ain't a city till it's got a water tower. Does Levon have a water tower? It does? All right, it's a city. <laughs> so I'm stretching, and I'm looking at it, and I'm, I'm c- computing this reality that ministry is not about a bigger platform Ministry is about making disciples and loving people and being faithful to the Lord wherever he plants you. And I'm looking up at this water tower, and I'm like, Lord, it would be so incredibly cool, God, if you sent somebody to Rowlett. I'm like, plant it in there. With a a passion of just like telling the whole community that you are loved, you know. I'm like, that would be so great. So glad nothing ripped. I'm not doing the other leg. (sighs) I kind of hurt. And God's like, ta-da. Yeah, tag your it. And you know what I thought? Rowlett's enough. Saxy's enough. Wiley is enough. The surrounding community's enough. Because there are people who are waking up every single day separated from Christ, absolutely convinced that they aren't loved, believing that in God's sight they are worthless, maybe rubbish, trash, whatever, 
or maybe it doesn't even exist. And, and we get the extreme privilege and honor of just lavishing them in love and introducing them to Christ. Because there are people in this city that are gods, they just don't know it yet, right? It's enough to be involved and to serve in some small way. Okay, second. And so my encouragement is obviously get plugged in and serve. Second application. When you do that, elevate only who? Uh -huh. Dangerous trend in our culture, and it is as ancient as Corinth. Corinth, what a messy city. If you've not read First and Second Corinthians, I encourage you to do it. We have a tendency to elevate certain people. And I often will have people come up to me and go, oh, my gosh, you, you, your, your mind is about, listen to what my favorite preacher just said. Or they're like, send me this podcast. This podcast will change your life. I'm not being rude, but I'm like, I'm kind of more interested in what Jesus said. I'm, that's, that's a cool quote. But I'm pretty sure that guy did not die on the cross for my sins. I'm pretty sure he wasn't buried and rose from the dead. So if there's anyone that we're going to elevate, let it be Jesus. Amen? Well, that was a problem. See, at Corinth, <laughs> Corinth, messy Corinth, um, they started to divide. And I'm just going to quickly reference this. I know some of you are, like, checking your watch. And I, I know what time it is. I got a clock back there. And I'm talking long, but that's okay. I got the mic. Um, don't turn me off. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 through 13. Paul says this. I appeal to you. So this is many years later. He says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree that there be no divisions among you, but you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it's been reported to me by Chloe's people. I don't know who Chloe's people, but she's got clout. And that there is quarreling, quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? No. And so he's like, some knuckleheads are like, I'm of Apollos, because he's like this eloquent silver-tongued guy, and he's just an apologist. And, I, and then others are like, I did, I'm all about Paul. And then other guys are like, I'm all about Peter. And then the really spiritual folks, we're only about Jesus. And Paul's like, what are you guys doing? Why are you dividing? Why are you elevating people? In fact, he goes on. Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? No matter how great a preacher is, no matter how great a person is being used, they are not Jesus. Okay. I just heard some balloons popping, but I'm sorry. Verse 5, chapter 3, Paul says, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? What are they? That's all we are, family. We're just servants. In fact, he goes on to say, through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each, I planted, Apollos watered, but it's God who gives the growth. So neither he nor plants nor he who waters is anything. That's pretty gnarly. Nothing. He who plants, he who waters, they're nothing. But you know who's something? God who gives the harvest. In fact, he finishes, he who plants and he who waters are one. Each will receive his wages according to his labor. We're just servants, laborers, for we are God's fellow fellow workers. We work together. 
Okay? So with that concept in mind that we are all fellow workers, that there's no one to be elevated above another, that we are not to worship anybody other than Jesus. So here's my final application, and, and let this just be a loving nudge. <laughs> Don't be a saved sloth. Isn't that good? Some of you are like, no, that's not good at all. Two things that jump out from the text as we've seen spiritual fervor and a teachable and hungry heart. God, give us that, right? Like, make us teachable. And some of you may be wondering, like, where do I get the content of my faith? Where do I grow in the knowledge of my faith? Well, it's, you don't have to go climb the Himalayas. You don't have to book a plane ticket to some far-off remote place where you're going to sit with some spiritual guru. Did you know, did you know, that everything that we need for our spiritual life is found right here in this massive book called the Bible? Overwhelming book of 66 books. And I remember the first time somebody handed it to me, I was like, that's a lot of pages. Wow, I bet you I could hold a lot of papers down with that. But what do I do with it? We want to show you how to do, how to handle this. That's why we invite you to men's study, women's study. That's why we invite you to be trained. And that's why every single Sunday we are in the text of Scripture. Because 2 Timothy 3 tells us this, all Scripture is God-breathed, breathed out by God, and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man or woman of God may be complete. Somebody say complete. Fill me with fire and make me complete. Mm-hmm. And equipped for every single good work. Don't be a saved sloth. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, your word is profitable. And honestly, Father, it has been a source of some of my greatest encouragement in my life. And at times when I've been fearful and scared and doubt, I've been reminded from your scripture that I am not alone, that faithful saints who have walked before us struggle with the same stuff. It is in your word that I came to know that you love me and that you love the world. And in fact, to you who may doubt that, I want you to hear this. You are loved. So much so, our Father in heaven sent his son to die on the cross for your sins. If you've never invited Jesus into your heart, into your life, I don't know what's stopping you today. Maybe you've got some doubts. Maybe you've got some questions. Like we can't answer all that right now, but I can tell you this. Jesus did die on the cross for your sins. He was buried, and he has risen from the grave, and he is alive right now. And the Bible declares that all who believe in him, all who trust in him will be saved, forgiven, and filled with the Holy Spirit. And so to you who do not have a relationship with Jesus, but you feel him calling you right now, I just, in the quietness of your heart, tell him, Lord Jesus, I believe. I believe that you died for me. I believe you were buried, and I believe you've risen. Please, Jesus, give me life. And the Bible declares that that is your prayer. You've just passed from death to life, spiritual blindness to sight. Welcome to the family. And now, Lord, we ask that you'd fill us with your fire. Make us burn for you, Jesus. Please use us. These cities are enough. May we have the privilege of carrying your gospel, your love, to the world. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.
All right, y'all, let's sing.